Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Stuart Tully, and I'm ready to begin our class, aren't you? For History 256, we're going to be starting out talking about Reconstruction. So I'm going to give you a second right now to get on Moodle and download that PowerPoint about Reconstruction. Now, I know this course is supposed to start in 1876, but there's no way I can really start it in good faith without talking about Reconstruction. So we're going to talk about Reconstruction for a little while. Uh, it's pretty much what we're going to cover for the first week, then we're going to get into the rest of the class. But you need to understand Reconstruction. So if we're talking about Reconstruction, um, the Civil War really dominates American history and the historical narrative. All right, when you talk about his, you know, when you talk about American history, the Civil War is kind of the defining central event when it comes to the entire narrative. Pretty much everything before the Civil War is leading up to the Civil War, and the society we have now is kind of after the Civil War, kind of due in large part to it. Now, the core question of the war, the core question of the war was whether or not a state has the right to leave the Union. You know, the Confederacy is founded of states that had been in the United States that were trying to leave the Union. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. Because the Constitution says absolutely nothing about a state leaving a Union. And that's plenty to say about how a state enters into the Union. Uh, you know, it becomes a territory, then it has to, like, file a petition, have to have enough people living there, and then it becomes a state. But it doesn't say anything about a state leaving the Union. Now, the states who seceded from the Union, they did it because they felt the Constitution allowed it. Basically, they said if the Constitution doesn't say you can't do it, you can do it. Whereas the Union, the United States, thought, you know what, no, you can't leave the Union. Um kind of like a marriage or something. You know, uh, can you leave a marriage? Well, yeah, theoretically you can leave a marriage. It's called a divorce. And so that's what the South is saying, is basically we want the right to be divorced from this union. I mean, pretty much all contracts, all unions of any sort, you can leave. Uh, there's very little thing as a perpetual union. I mean, if you leave a marriage, there's a divorce, you might pay alimony or something. If you break a contract, um, you might have to pay something, but you can break a contract. It may not be great, but you can do it. Uh, the United States, the Union is saying you can't do that once you join the United States. You cannot leave. Uh, you can join, but you can't leave. Now, why does the South leave the Union? Uh, slavery. That's, that's pretty much straight up. Uh, there is really, I mean, they might talk about states' rights. It was states' rights to have slavery. Pretty much uh, slavery was, some other scholars have said, it's the fulcrum of Southern identity. Pretty much everything in the South was centered around slavery, even though not everybody in the South owned slaves. In fact, most people in the South didn't own slaves. But the idea of slavery is kind of key to their economy, key to their identity, key to their concept of growth. Um, now, the North is a little bit more wishy-washy. Um, initially, they fought to preserve the Union. Uh, there really was no great talk about freeing the slaves. In fact, you have slave states that are in the Union. There are four states in the Union which have slaves, and even early on, Lincoln's pretty clear to make sure he's not trying to get rid of their slaves, he just wants to preserve the Union. It's only as the war goes on that Lincoln kind of has a change of heart, 
and there's more talk about freeing the slaves. Now, I want you to understand something. Just because they want to free the slaves doesn't mean they're necessarily pro-black people. Um, even Lincoln himself, starting out, was like, yeah, maybe we should colonize them, uh, send them back to Africa, maybe South America. Uh, the idea that African Americans would become full citizens of the United States was definitely not something set in stone. So what's going on in the each of the sides? Well, there's two sides of the Civil War. The first is the South. We all know the South. We're living in the South right now. The South is fully devastated by the end of the war. I cannot iterate that enough. It is fully devastated. There's really no way to describe the level of devastation. Uh, most of the war was fought in the South, mainly between Washington, D.C. and Richmond. Uh, from D.C. to Richmond, it's a, it's a pretty, I think it's about 70, 80 miles. You can drive there about an hour, hour and a half. Uh, most of the war was fought there. Uh, my wife's godmother lives in Richmond. We go visit her fairly regularly. And uh, pretty much everywhere you go, it's like a Civil War battle site. It's like whenever you're driving around Richmond, you're going to see a Civil War battle site after Civil War battle sites. Uh, now, the South at this time was primarily rural, not a lot of urban centers. But what cities were in the South were pretty much totally ruined. Um, if you go through some pictures... Uh, there's Richmond, 1865, completely destroyed. Uh, Columbia, 1865, South Carolina, completely destroyed. Uh, Atlanta was burned to the ground. Pretty much all cities in the South were destroyed by the Civil War. Now, the, the South lost the war. There, there's no two ways about it. The South lost the war, and the Southern people know that they're beaten, Okay. There's no real push for, like, guerrilla tactics. There's no real push of, like, keeping the war going. You know, the South might claim, oh, the South shall rise again, but it's been, like, 160 years. It, it's, it's not going to happen. You know, they've they put it off for a long time. Uh, some people do, I, I should mention, though, some Southerners do flee to places in South America. They try to keep their whole Confederacy alive. It doesn't really Now, the North initially wants to uh, punish all, sorry, uh, sorry, brain fart. Um, my dog just jumped on my lap. Uh, the North initially just want to punish the slaveholders. Uh, basically, they said they're the ones who are in charge of the, of the rebellion. Um, they're the ones who are really clamoring for secession. They're the elite. Uh, but this kind of expands to all Southerners. Um, you know, most of the people who fight in the Civil War in the South, most of your grunts, your soldiers, they don't own slaves. Uh, we're not going to talk about the Civil War explicitly, but not a lot of people really wanted to fight in the Civil War. Uh, mustering was always a problem, getting people to show up. Uh, the other thing that really you need to understand is that the economic cost of the Civil War is ginormous. Over the semester, you're going to hear me say this phrase a lot. Wars cost money. I would write that down. If, if, you, have, if you want to make a list of like you know, things Tully says a million times, things that I believe, uh, this one is key. Wars cost money. Wars are not cheap. Wars don't just cost money. They cost resources. They cost manpower. They cost lives. They cost a lot. 
And the Southern economy is utterly devastated by the war, not just by the cost of fighting the war, but what it does to the Southern economy. You see, the Southern economy was built upon agriculture using slave labor. Now, slavery was being used for agricultural means, and the halt of production during the war, because uh, the South was not producing cotton and other things just as much uh, during the war as it was before, they went down to almost nothing, that ruined the Southern economy. Cra- the, ca- the, cra- the cash crop crash. Man, say that five times fast. The crash of the cotton cash crop destroyed the Southern economy. Before the war, this was one of the richest places on the planet. After the war, in just four years, it goes to the poorest place on the planet, one of the poorest places on the planet. What happens? Well, international trade happens. Basically, the main consumer for Southern cotton was not the United States. Uh, You know, some factories in the North would use it. Most cotton from the South, though, went to England. Most cotton from the South went to England. That was their main customer. In fact, if the South was going to have a chance of winning the Civil War, which they had no chance, don't kid yourself, but if they would have had a chance, it was highly dependent upon England recognizing them as a country and providing them aid. That was pretty much the Southern strategy. Let's hold out long enough, have some victories, get England to you know help us because they depend on us for cotton. England doesn't do that. Uh, England starts getting its cotton from other places, uh, specifically India, which England controls, and Egypt, which England has a veiled protectorate. Egypt is not officially an English colony, but it pretty much is. India is definitely an English colony. Indian cotton, and particularly Egyptian cotton, is higher quality cotton than southern cotton. And it's now cheaper and easier to get to than Southern cotton. So England has no interest in buying American cotton. They're getting their cotton somewhere else. That is what destroys the Southern economy. Now, the human cost of the war is very high as well. Uh, More people died in the Civil War than all of their U.S. wars up to that point combined. Um, It's still the most highest-costing war in terms of loss of life for the United States. At least 620,000 people died. I've seen some numbers up to 750,000. So three-quarters of a million people died. In the South, about 70 to 80% of all eligible men went to war. Uh, Eligible men in this time period would have been about 18, well, 16 to 40-ish white men were considered uh, those who were able to fight, uh, didn't have any health problems. Uh, were not necessarily slaveholders or didn't have big plantations. They were exempt. That was a problem for the South during the war. <clears throat> About 38% of those who went to war for the South died. About one out of every four military-aged man died in the South. Now, that's a smaller, raw number than what happened in the North, but it's a higher percentage of the population. Uh, The cost of the war, like I said, it is staggering in its excess. Wars cost money. Wars cost money. Uh, One could buy 
all the slaves of the South at face value and build them a house, you know, 40 acres and a mule, cheaper than what the war cost. The war cost more than that. And the South spent everything it had on the war. Uh, Southern uh, currency, Confederate currency, was worthless after the war. Uh, people who converted their currency to Southern currency lost nothing. Sorry, they lost everything. They had nothing afterwards. They didn't lose nothing. They lost everything. Uh, Confederate money is worthless. Uh, if you were to bring to me some Confederate dollars, I may be like, oh, that's kind of cool, but she can't use it to buy anything. Uh, ending slavery also got wor- uh, rid of a huge another hunk of money, which was the value of the slaves. Um, in the worst, most, you know... Horrible terms, you know, if you're calling human lives just how much they cost money-wise. You know, a slave had a cost. It was turning a human being to a piece of property. But the value of the slaves in the South was equivalent to about $4 billion in 1860 money. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. And now that slavery's gone, that is a value in the South. That is a Southern asset that is worthless. Is it a horrible asset? Yes. Am I advocating for slavery? Good God, no. But in this time period, the slaves had a value. That was it. The South was a totally, totally conquered nation. Totally at the mercy of those who had conquered it. And there's really no idea what's going to come next within the South. There's a lot of apprehension, a lot of anxiety within the South about what's going to happen. Uh, Let's talk about what's going on in the North. Uh, The North had won the war. Um, If you didn't know the North won the war, they did. (laughs) They had a lot more serving in the war, which is a big reason why they won. About 2 million people served for the North, uh, including about 100,000 ex-slaves. It has a higher death toll. More people die in the North, but it's a lower proportion of the population. In the South, about 1 in 4 died. In the North, about 1 in 5 people died of military age. So this seems, you know, pretty similar between the North and the South. You know, the South has a higher percentage. The North has a higher raw number. But whereas the Southern economy is destroyed by the war, the Northern economy is doing better than ever. In fact, the Northern economy booms during the war. The North was the center of American industry such as it was and actually helped in mobilization for the war. Remember, wars cost money. And a lot of that money goes to manufacturing more equipment. Not just guns, but, you know, uh, bandages, uniforms, uh, foodstuffs, wagons, all sorts of things were needed for the war. And because the North was never really invaded during the war, its industry could go on unimpended. You know, they could make stuff, no problem. The factories kept humming. Uh, pretty much the South fought a defensive war, pretty much only Gettysburg, it was the only time that the South ever really invaded the North. So the, the Union was doing great economically. The Union is also in complete control of the federal government and uses this time to basically expand the power of the federal government. Uh, one of the things I'm going to talk about quite a bit in this class is how the federal government has grown in power and authority over the course of this time period. Pretty much from Reconstruction to present, the uh, federal government has grown in power and authority. 
Now, before the Civil War, a lot of Southerners did not like this expansion of federal government. In Congress, they would always stop this from happening. They would vote down, you know, federal government expanding, doing infrastructure improvements, raising taxes, things like that. But considering pretty much all but one Southern congressman has left the, uh, Washington, D.C. to go to the Confederacy, now they can pass all sorts of stuff. And they do. They pass all sorts of legislation. Uh, they raise the tariff, for instance. Also, uh, internal improvements are greatly expanded upon. Something the South would have uh, objected to extensively. Probably the most famous piece of legislation is the inter uh, the Transcontinental Railroad Act. Basically, the South was not really a fan of the federal government investing in railroads. Well, as we're going to talk about uh, next class, or not next class, but after we finish Reconstruction, railroads become big business, thanks in large part to this act, basically allowing for railroads to be built across the country. Now, at the end of the war, the federal government is more powerful than it has ever been in U.S. history. This is a very big federal government. It's even bigger. I go over a couple slides. Now, the Civil War has a lot of questions that arise, which Reconstruction tries to answer. There's some major issues that they need to solve the problems of. The first question is political. The big question is, how do you get these states back into the Union? Uh, the Constitution doesn't say, straight up. You know, if the Constitution didn't say anything about how a state leaves the Union, it certainly doesn't say anything about how a state re-enters into the Union after they left the Union. Uh, and they got to figure this out. They have to figure this out. Uh, another question that's a political question is, how much power will the federal government keep? You know, what's going to happen here? Is the federal government going to keep all the powers it had during war? Is it going to give it back? Uh, another thing, uh, the Constitution is explicit about some things. In fact, there's one thing the Constitution says uh, has the death penalty, and that's treason. So there's a question about what's going to happen in the South's former leaders. Can they come back into power? You know, a lot of are these Southern congressmen allowed to come back into Congress four years later, acting like nothing happened? Um, sh should we we hang them? Um, is having a rebellion that kills a bunch of people, you know, about three quarters of a million people, um, is that an act of treason? If it is, should they be punished? Should they be hung? That's something I really got to think about. A uh, big economic question is how is the South going to recover economically? Uh, the old system is gone and can't go back. Slavery is not coming back. Likewise, what's going to take the place of slavery? The South can't industrialize overnight. That's going to take a lot of money, something the South doesn't have. So how is the South going to do anything economically? Another set of questions is racial. Uh, what is the status of these four million formerly enslaved people? Are they citizens? Are they allowed to vote? Um, should they go back to Africa? Do we colonize them? Do we help them out? What, what are we doing here? Remember, in the South, slavery is not just a way to use labor to get rich, but also control the African-American population. And so white people in the South are wondering, how are we going to control these former slaves? There's always questions of control here. How are we going to control where black people come and go? 
Because even in the North, they're not exactly grand humanitarians believing in, like, you know, the humanity of African Americans. Um, even people in the North are like, maybe they should go back to Africa, but are they, are they citizens now? What, what are we going to do? Are we going to have a country that allows a sizable African American population? And no one really knows who, how to solve these problems, nor who should answer them. These are some big questions we got going on here. And who should answer these questions? Should it be Congress? Maybe the president? What, what are we going to do now? So the first person to really start this is Lincoln. Uh, Abraham Lincoln kind of puts it on himself to try to solve these issues. He begins kind of talking about this kind of early while the war is still going on uh, in states that failed the Union early. Basically, his plan was quite easy. He prefers unity. Uh, Lincoln is inconsistent on some of his political views. But one thing he is always consistent on is the idea that he wants unity for the United States, including the Confederacy. Uh, he can be kind of wishy-washy about slavery, but he is always consistent about he wants the South and the North to stay together, preserve the Union. Uh, also, if he makes this the, the way that states could re-enter into the Union very easy, uh, it could undermine Southern morale. Uh, one of the reasons the South left was, well, one of the main reasons the South left was because the election of Lincoln. It's for slavery, but the election of Lincoln was kind of a catalyst for the exodus in the South because they were afraid he was going to be mean to slavery and mean to the South. If Lincoln shows, I'm not mean on slavery, I'm not mean to the South, it could undermine Southern morale. Maybe some Southern states might come back. Uh, Congress aids in this by passing the 13th Amendment, which ends slavery. Um, also starting the Freeman's Bureau, which was very understaffed. Uh, the problem with all this is that Lincoln dies. Lincoln dies before the war's officially over. Uh, if you don't know that, now you know. Uh, major event, it makes the North even angrier than the South, and it makes Andrew Johnson president. We're talking about Andrew Johnson in a second. So what is Lincoln's easy-to-do plan for the South? Uh, pretty much if 10% of the white population of the state swears an oath of allegiance, the state is back in the Union. That's very easy. <laughs> Uh, some of these states, like Louisiana and South Carolina, have a majority black population. Also, men make up, you know, 5% of, sorry, 5, 50% of everybody, you know, men, women. So, uh, pretty much what you're talking about in some of these states, like let's say South Carolina, you're talking about maybe 2% of the population has to swear an oath to the Union. And bada bing, bada boom, the state is back in. Now, like I said, Lincoln is assassinated. And with his assassination, um, a very, very uh, unlikely, or no, I wouldn't say unlikely, but his poorly timed president becomes president, Andrew Johnson. Uh, when you look at the list of worst presidents, Andrew Johnson's usually, if he's not the bottom one, he's always in the bottom three. Um, James Buchanan might be considered a little bit worse by some, but Andrew Johnson's uh, really in the bottom. Uh, he is uniquely unqualified to be president in this time period. Uh, he is originally from uh, Tennessee. 
However, he is a poor Tennessee person. He is not a slave-holding elite. He hates the elites. He doesn't enslave for a hot second, but not too many. He is the one person who stays in the Union from the South after the Civil War begins. Remember I said how all the Southern Congress people left? He was the one who did it. Uh, he's also a Democrat, as opposed to Lincoln, who's a Republican. Uh, pretty much the only reason that Lincoln included him on the ticket is basically as a unity thing. Basically saying, hey, I'm Abraham Lincoln. I don't hate Democrats or Southerners. Look, a Southern Democrat is my vice president. You know, please vote for me and we can get rid of this whole Civil War thing. Uh, Johnson is headstrong. Uh, he is kind of unable to wheel and deal. Um, that's something you normally have to do in politics is be able to wheel and deal. He's not the best at it. He likes to drink. He's really good at upsetting people. Just a, not a very good politician. But he likes being president. He likes being president, so he decides, I'm going to stick with it for a while. And he needs to win over the South to get votes because the North doesn't really care for him. I mean, he's a Democrat from the South, and Southern Democrats started the Civil War. Now, his Reconstruction plan is a little bit more complicated than Lincoln's, but theoretically a little easier. So basically what Johnson says is basically he appoints a governor of the southern states, all right, so he gets appointed governor. Uh, the, uh, the southern states rewrite their constitution, uh, void their debts, basically saying, you know, the U.S. doesn't owe us any money, and renounce succession, and boom, they're back in the union. Uh, this requires even less people than Lincoln's plan. Where Lincoln's plan was 10% of the white male population of all these states. Um, Johnson's plan just needs a governor and, like, 50 dudes who can write a constitution. So it's even smaller. Um, you know, they renounce succession, they're back in the Union. By the end of 1865, by Christmas of 1865, you know, Johnson only becomes president in, like, spring of 1865. So six months later, Johnson says, Reconstruction's over, y'all. All the southern states are back in the Union. It's all good. Not quite. Not quite. Uh, Johnson was just saying stuff and hoping it would occur. Uh, after getting this easy plan, the South responds. Uh, Johnson's plan is pretty much self-reconstruction. Uh, the federal government doing almost nothing except ending slavery. And also, uh, even though it ends slavery, <coughs> Johnson says nothing about the status of former slaves and their rights. If you notice, it says, we just can't have slavery. He says nothing about our slave citizens. He says nothing about, like, you know, are they allowed to save the United States? Can you, you know, you can't discriminate against them. Do they have certain rights? Nothing like that. Just they can't be slaves. Uh, Johnson's plan was also allowed for the very rapid re-election of former Southern leaders, former Confederate leaders, back into Congress. Very lenient. Uh, basically, what Johnson said, and this is, I mean, Johnson, I'm giving a chef's kiss right now. This is just an amazingly brilliant plan if you want to be incredibly corrupt. Basically, Johnson said he would issue pardons for uh, Southern politicians and Confederate leaders on a per-person basis. He says, basically, if they come to me in person and I can tell that they're genuine about their apology, I'll give them a pardon. So basically, what it turned into 
was somebody has to go to the president, give him a bribe, and then he can become elected official again. Uh, Johnson is using this to try to gain political allies, try to make friends for himself. Uh, that's pretty much all he's doing here. It is just, it is just beautifully corrupt. Now, the response of white Southerners to all this is disgust. Uh, there's really no attempt to continue the war or, you know, continue slavery. Nothing like that. Uh, however, they feel disgusted because they're like, you know what? We don't believe we've done anything wrong. They felt that they were well within their rights to try to leave the Union. They said that leaving the Union wasn't wrong. They said we had the right to do it. We should have done that. They don't want to admit that the war was wrong or done for wrong reasons. Because of this, they elect most of their former leaders back into office. There's also a strong resentment of any federal interference, they claim. Any federal interference, any federal anything, they don't care for whatsoever. Uh, particularly the Freeman's Bureau. The Freeman's Bureau was made to help the former slaves uh, basically do things in society, um, you know, give them education. A big thing was like helping to uh, negotiate work contracts, uh, make sure they don't get signed any bad contracts. Uh, it was horribly underfunded. I want to say there was like something like one Freeman's Bureau agent for every 10,000 freed slaves. Like it was, it was, it was bad, y'all. It was bad. <clears throat> and even that, the South resents. They, they don't like anything about that. Uh, there's, a, there's a commitment to white supremacy in the South. The idea that, you know, even though they're no longer slaves, black people are not the equal to white people, and we're going to make sure they are not allowed to do in our society. Uh, as I mentioned before, they refuse to, you know, denounce secession. You also have the starting the passage of black codes. Uh, black codes kind of differ from state to state, but basically they're a set of laws that are designed to control freed slaves and particularly their labor. Uh, this isn't quite Jim Crow segregation yet. It's coming. Don't worry. We will most certainly talk about that. These are the earlier ones mainly about labor. Basically saying, what is a black person allowed to do? How are they allowed to work? Uh, usually include vagrancy laws. Basically, uh, vagrancy is a fancy word sometimes for loitering. You know, if you're not, if you're just like minding your own business, sitting there and you're black, you can be put in jail. If you're not able to produce papers saying here's who you work for, you can be put in jail. And guess what the punishment for jail is? Working. Uh, it's a very horribly messed up system where the natural state of African Americans was viewed to be working for a white person. If they're not working, they will be forced to work. Uh, the 13th Amendment has a giant loophole you might not have heard about. Maybe you have. The 13th Amendment, the one that outlaws slavery, outlaws slavery except punishment for a crime. You can be put into slavery as punishment for a crime. This gets used extensively in the South with things like the convict lease system. Um, I talk about that more in my African American history class, but I would highly suggest kind of Google. PBS did a very good documentary about the, the convict lease system. It's a pretty screwed up system that gets people pretty much back into slavery. So the South is unrepentant. Even though Johnson has been excessively lenient to them, and Lincoln was lenient in his own way too, 
the South feels, you know what, we're going to do our own thing. We hate all this to begin with. Now, after Johnson's plan and the Southern reaction, Republicans in Congress are just disgusted. Disbelief. Uh, particularly amongst the Republicans in the North. They want to see the South punished. They just see a lenient plan, an excessively lenient plan, getting its nose thumbed by the South. Like, the South is thumbing their nose at a very, very easy, basic plan. You know, the, the people in the North are like, hey, the South caused this war. The South caused all these people to die. The South, you know, is the one who, who caused all this stuff. They're the ones who are, you know, so dedicated to slavery, they cause, you know, three-quarters of a million people to die. And now they're acting as though they're not going to be repentant about it. They should be begging us, you know, for forgiveness. <coughs> Pleading with us, like, not to kill them, not to charge them with treason, which BT dubs. The North could have very easily charged everybody major in the South with treason, and now they're acting like they're not repentant. So Congress strikes back. Uh, Congress renews the Freedmen's Bureau. They give it even more funding. In response to the Black Codes, they pass the first Civil Rights Act. Congress goes even further. They put the same language into an amendment, uh, the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment says, basically, if you're born in U.S. soil... You're a U.S. citizen. So basically, this whole question about what to do with the former slaves, send them back to Africa, are they full citizens? The 14th Amendment just answered that. The answer is, they're citizens. They're full citizens. This makes the federal government the enforcer of civil rights. It also voids uh, federal debts. And additionally, if someone swore an oath to the Confederacy, so, sorry, whoop, sorry, if somebody swore an oath to the U.S., so like a congressperson, uh, whenever anybody is sworn into Congress, they swear an oath to protect the U.S. and the Constitution. The president does that, Congress does that. Pretty much any elected official, whenever they're, whenever they're sworn into office, they have to swear to protect the U.S. Uh, basically, Congress now says, if you did that, if you were ever an elected official, and you joined the Confederacy, you committed treason. And you no longer have any political rights. And you're lucky we don't kill you. So all these Southern Congress people who are coming back, you know, after being in Congress and then going to the Confederacy and coming back, uh, no, you committed treason. You have no more political rights. So there is a clear conflict between Congress and the president. Pretty much what's going to happen pretty soon is there's going to be open war between Congress and the president. Because Johnson decides to do something about it. Johnson uh, vetoes both the Civil Rights Act and the renewal of the Freedmen's Bureau. Now, Congress overrides them. So, basically, that's what Johnson does there. Also, interestingly, um, amendments are not just passed through Congress. An amendment to the Constitution, it's very hard to get an amendment passed. Amendments have to go through Congress, but they also have to go to the state legislatures. And I believe it's three-fourths of the state legislatures have to approve an amendment before it is put into the Constitution. Now, Johnson is openly telling Southern states, do not pass the 14th Amendment. The President of the United States, Andrew Johnson, is openly saying, hey, even though Congress passed an amendment, don't, pa don't pass it in the legislature. He's openly going against Congress. 
This doesn't happen often. There are times whenever a president um, has an adversarial relationship with Congress or an opponent you know, relationship with Congress or they're aggravated with Congress because Congress is kind of shutting them down. Very rarely, pretty much only when Johnson, will the president ever say, I'm not going to do what Congress does. Congress responds to all this by pretty much taking over all of Reconstruction. Now, why does this shift in power occur? Well, uh, there are two groups of Republicans in Congress uh, that have kind of come into power. A minority are what's called radical Republicans. Uh, The radical implies that they want a lot of major changes to occur. Um, Most Republicans in the time period are not radical Republicans, Radical Republicans believe in things like equality between the races, um, African Americans should have full citizenship, you know, the South should really pay for what they did. Uh, That is not a majority of the Republicans. Most Republicans are moderate Republicans. Uh, They don't care as much about the freed slaves or African Americans, but they're troubled by how the South seems to um, not acknowledge that they have indeed lost the war. So they start out by declaring that all of Johnson's previous actions are null and void. Uh, They even bar Southern... (coughs) Sorry. Woo, that was a cough. They even bar uh, the new Southern congressmen from entering into the seats of Congress. Like, literally, they stop Southern congressmen from coming in. So this new Congress is now acting more in authority... Like I said, if a Congress um, declares a president's actions null and void, that's a pretty strong, um, aggressive move against the president. That's not something you see every day. But however, remember, pretty much Congress and the president were at war with each other. Uh, The new plan for the South, done by these Republicans, uh, they divide the South up into military districts and declare martial law. Uh, They divide the South into separate military districts, put a general in charge of them, have the Union Army pretty much occupying the territory until they feel the South has a a new constitution and has done enough to be fully considered Reconstruction. Pretty much they say the South has to go back to the basics with their constitutions. Uh, The constitutions passed under Johnson aren't good enough. The new new constitutions have to give black men the right to vote as well as support the 14th Amendment. Uh, The 14th Amendment is the one that says citizenship, and then um, this will ultimately become an amendment, the 15th Amendment, that give black men the right to vote. This is a very different plan than Johnson. Uh, they're trying to set up a political system that's going to end the abuses of white Democrats. Pretty much before this time, there was only one political party in the South, the Democrat Party, and it was ruled by the uh, slave-holding elite. They want to set up a two-party political system in the South and they figure that black folks are going to naturally become Republicans. It's going to make the Republican Party viable in the South, which is something the Republican Party hadn't been before. Remember, pretty much before this time, everybody in the South was Democrat, those could vote. Now, that's not all, though. Congress goes even further. Remember, they're pretty much at war with Andrew Johnson. Um, Johnson upsets Congress by basically undermining (coughs) their plans as well. Remember, Congress declared that Johnson's actions were null and void. Well, Johnson's going to do what he can to null and void Congress's actions. 
In particular, if Congress is appointing military governors of the South, well, the president is the commander-in-chief. He can do whatever he wants with the military. So basically, Johnson starts dismissing these military governors. Congress gets upset about this, and they pass what's called the Tenure of Office Act. Tenure of Office Act. Which states that uh, certain high military officials can't be removed by the president without congressional um, permission. Now, remember, the president is commander-in-chief. Theoretically, he can do whatever he wants in the military. This is a total setup. I don't think anybody in Congress really wanted this to be long-term. It's a trap designed for Johnson. Uh, Johnson immediately challenges this act by removing a member of his cabinet, his secretary of war. Um, the president's cabinet is something even more, you know, done at the president's discretion. Uh, yes, uh, cabinet officials have to be approved by Congress, you know, the secretaries of various things. However, you know, if, if the president wants to dismiss a member of the cabinet, he can do that as, you know, by his own fruition. Uh, however, whenever Johnson... Uh, dismisses his Secretary of War, uh, which is now Secretary of Defense. Basically, he's a radical Republican. Congress responds immediately by impeaching him. They say that, hey, Johnson has broken the law. You know, we, he, he broke a law specifically designed to entrap him. Um, it would be like a modern-day law. I don't know. Um, I don't try to get political in these classes, but let's say... Let's say Congress passed a law saying the president couldn't tweet. Like, it's clearly a law designed to trap Donald Trump, and Trump would probably violate this law because tweeting is what he does. Uh, Johnson and Congress are way more contentious with each other, way more at war than Trump is, even though I know, you know politics seems pretty antagonistic right now. It's a lot more aggravating in this time, a lot more aggressive. And so, all of a sudden, you know, just a few years after a war's over, we have an impeachment. And this is something people are just like, what is going to happen here? Because we've never had a president fully impeached before. In fact, we've only had three presidents be impeached, period. Andrew Johnson's one, uh, Bill Clinton's another, Donald Trump is a third. Uh, it's not something that happens every day. Uh, it passes the House no problem. Basically, the House passes no problem. And in the Senate, it's looking like Andrew Johnson might actually be removed. Uh, this is the hottest ticket in all of Washington. If you go over one slide, you're going to see uh, this is like a recreation of what the ticket looked like. Go over one more, you're going to see what it looked like in the halls of the Senate. You know, you have the, the audience gallery, people wanting to hear what's going on. Uh, people were selling peanuts. They, they literally did. That was an issue in Congress for a while, was peanut shells. You know, this is the hottest ticket. This is a showboat. This is people want to see this. People want to know what is going to happen here. What is going? Are we going to remove a president? You know, Andrew Johnson's not very popular in the South, but good gosh, this is just after a major civil war. Is the country going to fall apart? Uh, there are more Republicans in the Senate, and so it's looking like Johnson might get it. Uh, to be impeached by the House, you just need a simple majority, but to be removed by office in the Senate, you need a two thirds. And Johnson minces the two-thirds by a single vote. We almost had a president removed from office by one single vote. And the congressman who did it, the senator who does this, he's actually a junior senator, I believe he's from Kansas, uh, he said the only reason he didn't do it, he thought Johnson was guilty of sin, but he's like, it would just, 
it's too much for the country right now. The country just couldn't handle it. We're too fragile. We're just trying to get into the Civil War. So that happens in 1868. Uh, Johnson is beyond politically destroyed. How bad is it? He doesn't even get the nomination of the Democratic Party. Uh, remember, he's a Democrat. That's bad. <laughs> uh, generally, incumbents get the nomination of their party when they're president. Even though they're not the most popular president, they're going to get the nomination. Um, Republicans nominate a war hero, U.S. Grant. Ulysses S. Grant become president. Um, Grant was going to win pretty much straight up. Um, Grant has his own problems as president. Uh, Grant, Grant himself is a pretty decent guy. Uh, however, his cabinet is very corrupt. Johnson becomes a lame duck. He is remembered as one of the worst presidents in history. Bottom three easily, sometimes the bottom one. Uh, not too much happens under Grant. Um, I could talk more about Grant, but I'm trying to be succinct about Reconstruction because, remember, this is theoretically not in the purview of this class, but you need to know about Reconstruction before we get into the rest of the class. Uh, the main thing that happens under Grant is that the 15th Amendment is passed. Uh, the 15th Amendment says that somebody cannot be excluded from voting based upon their race. This now makes the federal government the ones in charge of elections. So if I ever ask you in a test about the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, they're pretty important amendments. The 13th Amendment outlaws slavery except in the case of punishment for a crime. The 14th Amendment says that anybody born in the U.S. and is a citizen of the U.S., so former slaves are citizens. And the 15th Amendment says that basically you are allowed to vote. You can't be prevented from voting based upon your race. So let's talk about what happens in Congressional Reconstruction in the South. Now, Republicans are the majority in only two states in the South, which are the ones with black majorities. Uh, that would be uh, Louisiana and then South Carolina. Uh, Louisiana has a long history, particularly around New Orleans, of uh, wealthy people of color, Creoles, people of mixed heritage, French heritage. Um, South Carolina just has a very, very large black population. There's not as much Creolization, not as much... Um, mixed-race individuals or free people of color and status as there are in Louisiana. Louisiana, especially New Orleans, is very different at that time period. So the other states are need black and white Republicans to work together. And what happens is a very unusual alliance. One of the reasons why the Republican Party doesn't last very long in the South after Reconstruction is because of this alliance. There's an alliance between very different groups that don't have a lot to do with each other in Reconstruction. Now, the first is carpetbaggers. If you go over one slide, you'll see a carpetbagger. Uh, it's, a, some people, it's a bad name, some people might call you, maybe an old person might call you, you dirty carpetbagger. Uh, carpetbaggers are people from the north who come south for Reconstruction. Uh, they move down south, maybe they want to help rebuild things, maybe people in the Freeman's Bureau, maybe they think, uh, hey, it's a chance to like get land for cheap, etc. Uh, southern legend about carpetbaggers is that they're the ones who stole all the money from the south. The idea being the south was wealthy, and then all those dirty carpetbaggers came in and stole it. Um, the term carpetbag itself, I should mention that, comes from the type of suitcase they used. Um, 
a carpet bag was literally the cheapest piece of uh, luggage you could buy. It's pretty much like a literal carpet, so like a piece of fabric with handles on it. Uh, basically insinuating that these people, you know, came down from the south, from the north so quick, they just threw all their stuff in the cheapest bag they could find so they could come and start screwing over the south. I guess the modern day equivalent would be like the Walmart bag. Like, you know, they just throw your clothes in a Walmart bag and run on down because we're going to take over stuff. Uh, they are, they tend to have a disproportionate, they're not a very big number in population. Uh, they tend to be higher up in the hierarchy of the Republican Party in the South, mainly because they can be said they're a good unionist and they are, you know, from the outside. The second group are scallywags. Uh, scallywags. Uh, scallywags are Southerners who go along with Reconstruction. Pretty much non-slave-owning yeomen. Uh, it is a misnomer to say that everybody in the South supported the Civil War, supported the Confederacy. Large pockets of the South did not. There are places throughout the South where you, uh, like places in Mississippi, like Jones County, where you, actually, Jones County, they went extreme because they rebelled against the Confederacy. But there are a lot of pockets in the South that were very pro-Union, very pro-the United States, very anti-Confederacy. These people tended not to be slave owners. They tended to be middle or working class. They tended to own land. They tended to have some property, but not a lot of property. Uh, these are called scallywags, mainly by the Southerners who support slavery and don't like Reconstruction. Uh, a scallywag, the etymology, it's kind of hidden. Some people say it's an Indian name. The, the, the definition I've heard the most is that it's a sick cow. It's a word for a sick cow. And so, um, like I said, there are a lot of Unionists in the South. They don't tend to be on the higher edge of society. They're not like the slaveholding elite. They're generally working class, middle class people, people who don't feel that they want to fight. Uh, the third member of this weird alliance is business people. That's not too unusual. Uh, business people tend to vote Republican. Uh, business owners tend to vote Republican. Uh, that's one of the few things that hasn't changed about party composition in the United States over the course of this class. Is that people who own business and industrialists tend to vote Republican. That's no chance, no, no real change in this time period. And the final group are former slaves. The final group are former slaves who are now ready to vote. Uh, some of them are able to get mean. Some of them get elected to Congress fairly early. Uh, people like Robert Smalls. Uh, he's elected to Congress from South Carolina. Uh, the first U.S. senator who's black comes from Mississippi. Um, Louisiana has the first black governor in the country. Uh, PBS Pitchback is his name. He was actually the lieutenant governor. Uh, he, was, he served as governor for a while. He wasn't elected governor, but he served as governor. Uh, because the governor was the the regular governor was on trial for massive corruption, so while the trial was going on, PBS Pitchback served as governor. Uh, PBS Pitchback was a quadroon octoroon. Um, he was one of the free people of color from New Orleans, people of wealth of status. Um, uh, the term quadroon, if you're not familiar, it's a historical term. Basically, somebody of their four grandparents, one is black, so one fourth black. Octoroon, one-eighth black. I believe PBS Pitchback was what was called an octoroon, which is one-eighth black. Uh, he would later on uh, form Southern University, 
in New Orleans and later moved to Baton Rouge. He's actually buried at the campus in Baton Rouge. So this is the alliance of the Republican Party in the South. And white Republicans are the ones who are primarily elected to office. Uh, a lot of them are the quote-unquote carpetbaggers who get elected to office, um, even though black Republicans make a majority of the voting public. Most of the people who vote Republican are black. They're not the ones getting high office. Uh, there's if This is not a very strong coalition. I cannot iterate that enough. The coalition that comes together for the Republican Party in the South is fairly weak. It's not a very strong coalition. It doesn't last very long. Now, if we get into economics, there's still the question about what's going to replace slavery and what's going to help the South cover economically. Um, and to make a very long story short, go over two slides, it's sharecropping. Uh, if you look at this picture, this is a picture of Mississippi in 1908 of a sharecropper and his tenants. It looks like it could have been happening before the Civil War. White landowner, black people working the land. A lot of the times, uh, the people who are sharecropping are working in the same place that they were working as slaves. Uh, the freed slaves generally don't want to get involved in the sharecropping. Uh, they generally want to have their own land. However, that doesn't really happen. There's not a lot of choice in the matter. Uh, the way that sharecropping works is basically a landowner divides their land into certain portions, and the sharecropper grows a land. Uh, sorry, grows on the land. They grow crops. And basically, the landowner gets a share of the crops. It's almost though they're renting land from the landowner, and they have to pay in crops uh, come harvest time for the right to do so. Uh, the cut differs from plantation to plantation. I'm sorry. Well, it's a plantation. I can say plantation. It differs from uh, landowner to landowner. Generally, though, sharecroppers were giving anywhere from a third to a half their crops to their landowner for the right to um, grow crops. At the end of the season, the sharecropper and the farmer share the, share the crop. Uh, this system is very problematic for multiple reasons for the freed slaves. Uh, the problem is, uh, maybe some of y'all who are in agriculture, maybe you have parents who are farmers or you have grandparents who grow stuff, uh, agriculture is heavily dependent upon credit and debt. Uh, before the growing season, you're going to have to borrow everything for the season. you got to borrow money for seeds and, you know, implements and fertilizer and tools and all sorts of things. So at the beginning of the season, you're putting out a lot of money, you're borrowing a lot of money, and hopefully you make it back at the end. Now, here's the thing. Who are you going to borrow money from if you're a sharecropper? Well, pretty much, there's no banks or anything. I mean, these sharecropping areas are in very rural, very remote areas. So you're probably going to borrow from the landowner. Now, the landowner is going to charge you interest, because who's not going to charge you interest? So he might be, the landowner might be getting a bigger share of your crop. Well, that's okay, you think. I'm just going to grow more stuff. The problem with basic economics of supply and demand is the more stuff you grow, the lower the price gets. And your debt doesn't change. So as you grow more stuff, let's say you grow more cotton, the price of cotton is going to go down and the amount of money you get is less. And guess what? You get in debt. So the next year you grow even bigger and you're going to try to grow more stuff because that's pretty much the only thing you can do to gain more money. All of a sudden you are crazy deep in debt and there's no way you can leave. 
Now, I would never say anything is worse than slavery, but sharecropping is very similar to slavery, except now you're in debt. Um, as I said, a lot of slaves were working, sorry, a lot of former slaves were working in the same plantations where they were slaves, as the sharecroppers. Generally, though, they would move the uh, slave cabins. In fact, a lot of times they were in the same slave cabins, but they would literally move them. Like, literally pick them up, move the building somewhere else on the property. They just wanted to have a little bit of distinction. This is a non-step cycle of debt for the, uh, for the sharecropper. The landowner pretty much is getting labor, except now they're getting their labor deep in debt. Uh, sharecropping goes on for quite a while. Uh, theoretically, it ends around the 1940s and 50s, uh, when mechanization gets a lot bigger. Uh, it grows. It grows. It gets very big. Also, as time goes on, it's not just African Americans who are involved in sharecropping. Uh, I can tell you from personal experience, not my personal experience, but my mother-in-law, my wife's mother, who's in her 70s, was born a sharecropper in Mississippi. Now, my wife's mother-in-law, my wife's mother-in-law, my wife's mother is white. However, she was born a sharecropper in Mississippi. Her parents were sharecropping, and she was growing up in the 40s and 50s as a sharecropper. So this is something that lasts for quite a long time in the South. Also, the price of cotton plummets after the Civil War. Talked about that earlier. Uh, England is now getting their cotton from places like India and Egypt. So the demand for southern cotton is even lower. This is making southern farmers grow even more cotton because they want to you know, get their money back. Uh, the price of cotton gets even worse. Uh, debts don't go down whenever your income goes down. And so pretty much sharecropping becomes a pretty bad economic system for the South, but it's what they know. Also, look up the convict lease system. I'll talk about it later. Um, if southern towns are able to industrialize, a place like Birmingham, for instance, which Birmingham didn't exist before the Civil War. It was a merger of three towns after the Civil War. Uh, Birmingham gets really big because of its steel mills, which are heavily dependent upon convict labor. A lot of this convict labor is on loitering laws and basically using that loophole, the 13th Amendment, saying you can be enslaved as punishment for a crime. Um, now, we're going to get into the end of Reconstruction. I mean, I could talk a lot more about Reconstruction, but, you know, like I said, we're being succinct. Uh, there are four political developments that really cause Reconstruction to end. And when does Reconstruction end? Well, pretty much Reconstruction ends whenever the Democrats retake control of the South. Pretty much when all Southern states go back to being Democrat, that makes Reconstruction over. Um, there's no real one distinct end. Uh, the, the, the one that historians typically say, the election of 1876, which we'll talk about in about 10 minutes, uh, that is a distinction, but that's not really the end of Reconstruction. It mainly peters out. Um, it's one of those things that begins with a bang and kind of ends with a whimper. It just, you don't know what it ends. It just kind of ends. Now, why do the Republicans fail? What happens in the South? Well, the number one reason is inherent tensions within the Republican Party. Remember, this alliance between carpetbaggers, scallywags, uh, businessmen, and freed slaves doesn't really have that much unity going for it. Uh, there's not a lot of issues they're really all on the same page about. And this is not good for the Republicans because the Democrats in the South are becoming a lot more unified in their messages. 
There's three things that the Republicans become unified about. Three things that they really start branding with their messages. Uh, two of them would probably get you elected nowadays. The third one, don't do. Uh, the first one is taxes. They say, hey, we don't like all these taxes. We don't like the fact that you know the federal government is raising taxes upon the South. Um, you know, we're we're going broke because the cotton economy is dead. Why should we pay taxes? Um, you could get elected to office by saying you don't like taxes. I I, I think that's a fairly solid political platform. Uh, the second thing the Democrats start really talking about is corruption. Uh, they claim that the Democrats are going to become the protectors of corruption within the governments. They claim that Republicans are very corrupt. Uh, remember the governor of Louisiana was on trial for massive corruption whenever PBS Pitchback became acting governor for a while. Uh, there's a lot of accusations that African-American politicians are more corrupt than their white counterparts. That's not true. That's just racist. But the language still really works. Uh, they claim that the Republican governments are very corrupt. Are they actually? Not particularly but still, it's an accusation that really works. You could get elected to office right now by saying, hey, my opponent or my opponent's party is very corrupt. Well, it has a lot of resonance. But the big one the Democrats start doing, and the one that won't get you elected nowadays, is they really start pushing white unity, white supremacy. That's a thing they really start pushing. The South, Southern Democrats really start pushing the idea that as white persons, we should be unified together. Uh, even as early as 1876, uh, which is about 10 years after the Civil War ends, you start having unity parades. The end of that doesn't matter if you served in the Confederacy or the Union. We're all soldiers, and we're, you know, we all love America, and we're, we're, we're united in valor. You know, even though we fought against each other, we're still brave, we're still good people, we're still good Americans... Uh, they have veterans like march together in parades. They don't have like a separate union section or a separate Confederate section. They start talking about things like, hey, you know, wasn't camp life crazy? You know, remember we're sleeping on the floor. Oh, you know, we're we're brothers now, but we fought just ten years ago. They really start pushing this unity message. Now the Democrats are not just doing that; they're also starting to use violence. They start using violence to suppress re Republican voters and Republican actions. Uh, the big organization you've probably heard of is the Ku Klux Klan. If you go over one uh, slide, you'll see a political cartoon about the Klan. If you go another slide, you're going to see what the historical Klan looked like in this time period. Uh, there are at least two clans. I'm talking about the first Klan. We'll talk about the second Klan in a couple weeks. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan was formed by former Confederate veterans and actually formed initially as kind of like a social drinking club. Uh, the term Ku Klux is a bastardization of Greek for brotherhood. Uh, basically, they start out together just drinking, being former officers, uh, people who might have had a little bit of education or literacy in a place where the South doesn't have it. Uh, fairly early on, they start saying, you know what? We don't like black people. We don't like Republicans very much. Maybe we should do stuff against them. And they start becoming violent. Uh, pretty much the Klan mainly acts in areas which have a sizable black population, but not a majority black population. 
uh, areas such as uh, South Louisiana or South Carolina in general don't have the highest clan population in general, mainly because there's a lot of areas where black people are in the majority. Generally, the clan thrives in areas that are sizable enough black population, but not a majority black population, enough to impact the vote, but not enough to be the majority of the vote. Uh, the clan starts doing all sorts of things. They start intimidating people, uh, hanging, tarring and feathering, threatening. Uh, they don't do the Burning Cross in this time period. The Burning Cross is something the second clan does. Actually, the second clan gets it from a movie we'll talk about later. But pretty much, they are acting in violence, and they're pretty much acting as the military wing of the Republican Party. Whoops! Democratic Party. Sorry, 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 sorry. They're acting against Republicans as the military wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, they are not the only ones by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you have the White League, Knights of the Camilla. There are a lot of these different organizations. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan, however, becomes kind of the um, standard bearer, the most well-known, mainly because they get uh, a former Confederate general who's a very not nice person, uh, Nathaniel Bedford Forrest, uh, the butcher of Fort Pella, the, the guy behind the Fort Pella massacre. Uh, he's known for being very racist, very against black people. He does not form the clan. However, the clan asks him fairly early on to become their first grand wizard, uh, basically the first person in charge of the clan. Uh, basically, he gives their racist organization credibility. Uh, because of this high profile, because Nathaniel Bedford Forrest was a fairly well-known Confederate general, the clan starts becoming pretty well-known throughout the South, starts getting a lot of attention. Uh, it doesn't last all that long. Uh, President Grant is able to pass the Ku Klux Klan Act, which basically gets rid of the Klan. Uh, pretty much, the Klan has its heyday in this time period, only for about 10 years. And then the Klan pretty much disappears until 1914. Uh, the KKK Act pretty much bans the Klan from existing, and it's actually quite effective against the Klan itself. Other organizations still exist. The Whites of the Camilla exist forever. However, that pretty much does it for the Klan, so that is the first Ku Klux Klan. But the main reason why Reconstruction ends, and the main, main reason, the one I want you to think about, is simply a loss of interest in the, by the North and Congress. Remember, the war had gone on, the war had only happened for ten, four years. Reconstruction has been going on for 10, 12 years now. People are just losing interest. There's stuff going on in this West, you know? People were like, why are we spending money and time and resources on these jerkwads in the South who don't want to do it? You know, the hell of the South, we're going to focus more on the North, focus more on the West, all sorts of cool things are happening in the West. You know, why don't we just do that? Uh, black equality was not that big of an issue. Outside of black people interested in the radical Republicans, most people in the country didn't really care about African-American rights. They didn't want slavery, but they didn't really care about, you know, African-Americans getting the right to vote. Plus, in 1873, there's a big panic. A big uh, economic depression. A massive economic depression. It's like, hey, why are we spending money on the South? We need money for ourselves. This depression's really bad. We should focus more upon that. That's pretty much the main reason why Reconstruction ends. Now, the end of Reconstruction really happens whenever white Democrats take over the South again. Um, by 1876, there are only three states that have Republican governments. 
Uh, southern states have become Democrat, first in states with white with white majorities. Uh, in time, basically, these Southern Democrats, they get really unified. They start taking over the states, taking over the politics, kind of getting rid of this Republican Party, either through force through the KKK, but mainly just by voting them out. And kind of the Republican Party in the South didn't have the base, best political base. Like I said, by 1876, only three states have Republican governments. Two of them I've talked about quite a bit before. South Carolina, Louisiana, both of which have black majority populations. And finally, it couldn't be a U.S. election without this state screwing it up, Florida. Uh, Florida still has a Republican government. Now, the election of 1876 happens. It's incredibly controversial. It's one of the most controversial elections in U.S. history. Um, I'd say only 2,000 is probably more controversial as an election. But in 1876, you got Tillman for the Democrats and you got Hayes for the Republicans. Now, it's a very close election. Tillman barely gets the votes for win the popular vote. However, it's the United States. Popular vote doesn't matter. Electoral college votes matter. And there's no clear majority because the election results in those three states are disputed. Even though they have Republican governments, they have a lot of Democrats in them, and theoretically, Tillman wins those votes. However, because the states are still under military control, Republican vote governments, the Electoral College members are kind of not keen on going with that majority, and there's a lot of contention about what are we going to do. Now, the Republican candidate, Rutherford B. Hayes, makes a bargain, kind of a corrupt bargain with these states. He says, hey, if you give me your Electoral College votes, therefore giving me the presidency, I swear I will remove federal troops from your state, pretty much allowing Republicans to be defeated, even though it's got black population, and basically letting Democrats overrun them. These three states agree to it. Uh, Rutherford B. Hayes is as good as his word, and this is considered the end of Reconstruction. However, Democrats respond to this with a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration with the Republicans by using the special commission. Hayes makes, makes a deal. This pretty much ends Reconstruction with a bit of a whimper. Uh, like I said, it dies off well before this kind of action ending. Uh, this is something historians talk about as a nice definitive end for Reconstruction. But as I said, it's more... It just kind of ends. So what are the outcomes of Reconstruction? Well, let's think about those questions we asked earlier. You know, the, the main political question of Reconstruction was can these, how do we states get back into the Union? Uh, the answer is, well, they do. It takes a weird process, but the states are back in the Union. Um, it's not perfect, but we've got the states back in the Union. Also, the issue with the federal government. Um, federal government's bigger than ever. The federal government really hasn't given away any of the power that it took during the Civil War. It's shown that it was not going to be a temporary measure. Economically, what's going to replace slavery? Well, the answer is sharecropping. Sharecropping replaces slavery. It's very similar to slavery, but it's slavery. It's not slavery. It's its own new economic system. Finally, what is the role of African Americans within the society? Well, 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment. They have freedom. They have citizenship. They have voting rights. However, they're very easily oppressed. The 13th Amendment 
has a loophole that says you can be arrested and enslaved or punished for a crime. The convict lease system makes sure very much that that happens. The 14th Amendment says you're uh, a citizen. Uh, that's made problematic because you don't get your full rights of citizenship. Likewise, you have the right to vote. Thank you to the 15th Amendment. It's very, very easily suppressed thanks to the black codes and things like that. And that's how we're going to end Reconstruction. As I said, it ends with a whimper. It ends with something that is unfinished. And that's something we need to have, you know, kind of in the back of our minds as we begin the class in earnest. Remember, this class theoretically begins in 1876, but you need to understand Reconstruction, particularly that there are so many unanswered questions. You know, Reconstruction didn't necessarily fundamentally reform the country. It just started a lot of questions that it never ended. And that's where we're going to end today. Uh, make sure you work on your primary source assignment. I'll be doing a separate podcast about that where we talk about that and do a little bit more depth. With that, this is Dr. Tully wishing you a good one.